Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, Ireland declared its first case of COVID-19 on the 29th of February 2020. Seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? That first case then set in motion a chain of events that has led to over 5,000 deaths, mass unemployment and an entire country almost coming to a standstill. A new book detailing this extraordinary time in Irish history has been written by Virgin Media News correspondent Richard Chambers, who joins me this morning to discuss A State of Emergency, the story of our Ireland's COVID crisis. Good morning to you, Richard. Morning to you, Patricia. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, thank you for taking time out to uh, talk to us. Am I right in saying that this is your first book? It sure is, yeah. Oh, okay. so, um, it's it was a, a daunting progress process to, to try and do it. You're sort of stare, staring at a blank screen on Microsoft Word and you're like, oh my God, how do I do this? Well, it's it's an absolute page turner. It's jaw-dropping at uh, times. And you have a natural gift, I can tell you that. I mean, you are a storyteller. You can see that in the way you report. But by God, there's a big difference between the spoken word and the written word. You've got a very really good talent for the written word so I don't think this is going to be your one and only book uh, for sure. Congratulations to you on it. It's great. But take me back. What prompted you to write it? Thanks for saying that. Um, but um, yeah, I suppose I, I sort of thought about it in 2020. I was like, well, is there anything I could do more on this? Because is, 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 I write a book on this and I really, I sort of dismissed it at the time because I, think, I thought, well, I don't know if I have the time to do anything like that. But then I was approached in, in January this year to think about it and I was like, okay, if I was to do it, what sort of stories would I tell? How would I get it across? And, and sort of, because there's so much, if you, if you were to try to write a, a, the definitive book about everything that's happened in COVID-19 in Ireland, you'd be well over a thousand pages. But just to be able to sort of pull out what's important, get a few different strands which sort of tell the full story, that was kind of what was exciting to me. And I did think that writing it at a time when everybody was still in their position, while the relationships, the tensions between all of the key players are real, I thought that was the right time to do it because I felt like if I did this in a couple of years' time and it was everybody was finished with COVID-19 and they were looking back, well, then you might get a very sort of sanitized account of it. And I think it was important just so people have an understanding of what was happening behind the scenes when all of these decisions were taken that governed our lives, that we did this now and that we did this while people were in their positions and people's memories were fresh as well. And people were willing to talk. Yeah, I was. Uh, there was there, there, I was very, very few people who didn't want uh, to sit down and do an interview for the book. People did see the value in the project. I do think I was blown away, I suppose, by the honesty, sort of the rawness of some of the stuff that people were saying about their experiences of it. So, yeah, there, there was hundreds, hundreds of hours of interviews sort of conducted for this, like going from, you know, both Taoiseachs, 
uh, over the course of the of the pandemic, the CMO, the deputy CMO, head of the HSE, and then going down through other elements of it as well, people in different hospitals, GPs, you know, people's personal stories of COVID-19, because that's really what it is about. That's what I really want to try and make sure, because, you know, so often when we do talk about COVID-19, when it is in the media and the news, we tend to focus on, you know, statistics and trends, when that's really not what this is. This is a human story that affected every single one of us. Every single one of us has been affected by COVID-19 in some way. Uh, but to get the personal stories of people whose family members, I suppose, were were, were, were sort of, you know, paid the ultimate price for, for this was, yeah. was extremely important. And I have to say, when, when I started reading the book, I wasn't... Um expecting the rawness of the some of the personal stories. I mean, they're utterly heartbreaking. I mean, it wasn't a book that I was expecting. I was looking for the tissues. I was actually crying at, on some of the pages because they, they're just heartbreaking. Like, for example, the loss of uh, Dr. Ali, who worked in the, in the Martyr Hospital. Talk to me about Dr. Ali. Yeah, uh, Dr. Saeed Wakar Ali, he was um, uh, originally from Pakistan, but he was an emergency uh, department doctor, a locum, basically worked across. La Crosse number of different hospitals on the east coast of Ireland. Uh, and he turned up for work one day at the Matter Hospital where he'd been regularly working at the start of COVID. And uh, he felt unwell and effectively he was taken for testing and it, it turned out he had COVID. Um, he was an extraordinarily amazing, he's just a, a brilliant doctor. Um, he spent months in ICU before dying in, in last summer, in, in summer of 2020. But the outpouring of, of grief at that time from healthcare workers, he was one of the first healthcare workers in this country to die of COVID-19. And at the death of that, I think, had a huge amount of impact across our health service, as well as the community. I do remember at the time, there was a huge amount of, oh my God, this is, this is I can't believe this is happening, was, was kind of the, the feeling. But from his patients who he'd worked with in the past, who he'd looked after, they always felt so supported and so seen by him. He always took a, a huge interest in their personal lives. So his loss was huge. And I suppose, speaking to his family and in particular his daughter Summer Ali who now herself is a doctor in the Matter Hospital to see the impact of his death the grief that it caused but also she's now taking her first steps in medicine working effectively in the same hospital where her dad died she had always hoped to work alongside him that her first jobs in in, in medicine in Ireland would be working alongside the person who had inspired her over all these years and I know it was something that they both looked so forward to so I suppose I'm just blown away by the strength of the Ali family, Summer in particular, and just really how they've they've sort of pulled each other through this and are still, you know, effectively she's working the floor above the ICU where her dad died. Well, and you, you recount that beautifully, I have to say, uh, towards the end of the book. But, you know, what, what the one thing I took from it was his spirit lives on. In, yeah. in his in, in his daughter and then everyone is aware of the, the devastation uh, in our nursing homes but you've you've put a face to some of those deaths particularly one of our own uh, Sheena Murphy who died at Clan Community Hospital Yeah I think this is important as well because do you, do you know there's actually something which I find it, it's tough to hear as a human it's tough to hear now when you start to see it creeping into commentary both online and almost sometimes in politics as well about oh, it's only people in nursing homes who are affected. So it's older people or people with underlying conditions. Which I find just extraordinarily uncaring, really. Sheila Murphy was just one of the most amazing people anyone could possibly meet. I was actually, I met a nurse who actually was one of the people who looked after her in Clonakilty Community Hospital last night, and she was telling stories about how wonderful she was. So she died in Clonakilty Community Hospital in the first wave, um, in, a, in an awful outbreak in the community hospital there. And she was just 
so loved. I mean, I, I, I was speaking actually to a nurse who, who helped her last um, last spring when she basically the last time Sheila saw her, her husband Connor was on the phone as so many of the goodbyes were over FaceTime effectively and, and him singing You Are My Sunshine to her mm. as, as, as she was going. I mean, it's just, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to process, but her family and the, her, their resilience and how we, we sort of move on from those losses which we've experienced so much over the last year is something that I think is going to stick with so many communities. Cork and Clannacilty in particular, I mean, there's such a community spirit in, in places like West Cork, and I think that we will have to try and find space to remember people and to continue to remember them, that this isn't something that we sort of mentally close a chapter on when we when we come through it, because I think that's something which we tend to do in this country sometimes, and I hope that we don't. Yeah, and I remember particularly with Clan Community Hospital speaking with here on the programme with somebody who'd volunteered to help out the local undertaker and, you know, talking about going into Clan Hospital to pick up somebody, the remains of somebody who died uh, from COVID and the respect and the dignity that was being shown by the staff who were all yeah. devastated. They were abs- And on that point, I mean, hospital staff all over the country will take a very long time to get over what they witnessed, especially the deaths, Richard. Absolutely. I think that's an interesting point, Patricia, as well. It's like, I mean, I know so many nurses who I've spoken to over the course of the pandemic who are thinking now, as soon as this is over, they're emigrating. Just because of the impact of what they've, they've gone through, they don't feel like the health service is respected. You know, the, the, the sacrifices that they made. But sometimes we have this view that, you know, people can, like, if you're a professional and you're working in a hospital, that you're somewhat detached from things, but you're just not. Like, there was people, for example, in the Matter Hospital in Dublin, staff there, who, at a time when people weren't allowed in to visit their loved ones and they were extraordinarily sick in hospital, they made sure that they set aside time just to sit with them so that nobody had a risk of dying alone. Because that, that just speaks to the humanity, just the, the enormous compassion that is there within our health service, amongst our doctors, our nurses, our HCAs, our porters in particular as well. Like, for example, one of the, one of the, the, the most extraordinary characters I met over the course of the book was Ken A. Byrne, who's a porter in the Matter Hospital in Dublin. He's often, for so many people, the human face of this. And what was so interesting is that, you know, the impact on the humanity of the connection we build with people, so patients in hospital and the porters, and they're all wearing PPE, that just created this sort of shield in between what's normally like even locking eyes with someone and touching shoulders and stuff like that at a time when we need support, just the impact that that had on people. And that could be so strange and just just otherworldly that we had these you know, separations in our lives at a time when we needed them the most. Yeah, and it also explains why the death of Dr. Ali had such an effect on all of the hospital staff, because all of them realised they were, for the grace of God, go any of us, and they were going into work knowing that they were risking their own lives. Yeah, I think that's what, what's extraordinary as well, is that, you know, you... you, you sort of speaking to staff in the ICU in the matter, there were a number of ICU nurses, for example, who were um, who, who effectively became ill with COVID-19 and were being looked after by the people they'd worked and trained alongside. And that happened in other hospitals too. That you had, especially if you think, think about ICU, and for example, that is so highly specialised and trained. Like these people are effectively a family. They spent years of their lives working alongside each other, trying to save lives. And then they themselves, are in the firing line. They're the ones whose lives are then on the line. And that's like that, 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 that emotional topsy turviness that people had to go through and just the worry and the stress and their families too, who are worried at home, you know, watching the news bulletins at night and worrying about their loved ones who are, you know, working over and above the call of duty every single day to make sure as many people came home from hospital 
having survived COVID-19 and themselves were in, were in danger. That sacrifice, I think, is something that I really hope that we all reflect on, that we all just make sure that we are thankful for it. Because yeah. I know we did things like the clap for heroes, that there was posters for, you know, supporting our frontline heroes. It's something that we take on with us, that we do remember that when we move on from this pandemic. Yeah, because it's going to take many of that, many of those staff a long, long time to get over what they've witnessed over the last 18 months and it still isn't even over yet. Go back though to the beginning, the early days and the scramble for PPE uh, gear, that part of it, the beginning part of your book, we came very close in this country. To, we did, uh, to, yeah. And hospitals would, wouldn't even have been aware how close we came to running out. No, and I think there's, there's one person whose story I told in the book. It's, it's um, the head of procurement, effectively, in the HSE. is a man called Sean Bresnan. He's extraordinary. Just a really lovely guy. And he just went out of his way to make sure that we got through this. Because at the start, I think people will remember, it, the, the amount of scrambling and piracy, as Paul Reid described it as the HSE, for PPE with countries effectively stealing off each other and hijacking each other's orders. We were effectively, at one point, so close to a situation where the, the amount of PPE, gloves and masks and gowns being sent to hospital was going to be halved because we were, hadn't received an order from China. Effectively, there was a team from the HSE standing on the apron alongside the runway at Dublin Airport waiting for an order to arrive. And it's been described to me as sort of a Dunkirk moment that, you know, the virus was here, the enemy was at the gate, and the only tools we had to protect our healthcare workers we weren't sure about whether we were getting it. In the matter, they were a day from running out of masks. And for a hospital of that size to be in that situation, this was really skin of the teeth stuff. And I think there's actually, from speaking to people on Neffet, they feel at times there was just an enor- a huge amount of chance and just luck that got us through a situation where we didn't end up at times in a place like northern Italy or in a situation like we've seen sometimes in the US or even across the water in the UK where we had you know, health workers stapling bin bags together or in just in a situation where huge amounts of health workers were becoming sick and ill with this. We came very, very close to that. I think that's something which I really did want to highlight in the book as well. Oh, you because did, that's something yeah. we only learned as well. Yeah. That's just how close we came to a, a really un- unmitigated catastrophe. Because when we watched those Aer Lingus planes touch down in Dublin Airport and, oh, we're all safe. Should look at all the boxes of things that are arriving. It was a drop in the ocean to what was actually needed. Yeah, it was. I think so many of us, when we saw that at the time last March, and we saw the, you know, we heard like even the air traffic controller speaking to the, the Aer Lingus pilots who were dropping the stuff back. And there's that enormous sense of national pride at the time. But this stuff was being gone through at an enormous rate. And I know that there's a political sort of look at the moment about, do we really need all that? And there was at the time as well, even within the Department of Social Protection, do we really need all of these masks? And I think there was a huge pushback in people in the health service and people who actually using these masks and these gowns, we're like, oh my God, I can't believe that they're actually questioning this. We have this, we need this stuff to get through. We're burning through it at an enormous rate. This is one new stuff. It's, yeah, effectively, that, that supply chain became so uh, so important. You had even, like, the HSE, you know, built up this relationship with the Chinese ambassador, who they, they he's a guy called Ambassador, who they became, they came to know him as Doctor Who, uh, in the HSE, given the, the, the role he played in getting this stuff in. Mm. But it was so important. And, you know, there was a huge amount of sacrifices that were made. There was great donations made by just people who were working in the private sector as well. You know, there was a huge effort to try and keep things running. And it almost wasn't even enough, even at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, we even had builders who were donating masks at one stage, which seemed absolutely bizarre that you would have a, builder, a building supply company donating to um, a, a local hospital. And then we, with great detail, you outlined the lead in to Christmas of last year and how it all went wrong. And I have to say, when I got to read that section of the book, it felt to me like, you know, when you pick up a book about the Titanic and you know that the ship is going to sink, but you can't put the book down, you know where it's going. And there was that sense of that. You And it's the way you build it up is, is, is really very clever. If the disagreement between Neffet and the government in October, Richard, if that didn't happen us moving, the effort wants us to move to level five. Do you believe the government would have handled Christmas differently? I think there would have been a different dynamic, definitely, Patricia. Like, it was, it was just interesting over the course of the book. Everybody started pointing to this row in October when Tony Houlihan arrived back and he recommended the level five restrictions the government pushed back. I remember Leo Varadkar was on TV saying that they hadn't thought it through and that nobody on Neffert would ever be on the PUP. That row and how that was handled, I think, completely coloured the run into Christmas, and people on Neffet and in government believe that's the case as well, that there was this huge misunderstanding, that communications broke down. Neffet was scrambling around on phone calls over the course of that weekend when Tony Hulen came back trying to think, how do we manage this? We can't just land this on the government. And it would be something which Neffet people would say was a huge misstep by Tony Hulen, but also then the government and how they took that message about the, the emergency of the situation was just poor on the other end as well. There was a huge amount of anger and open glee at you know, sort of the, 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 the attack on Tony Houlihan and Neffet by Leo Varadkar on, on Claire Byrne that time. That row really did colour things. I think that there was a view that if, you know, that among some people in government that, oh, they predicted doom around then, but we didn't have doom in, in October. So why would we listen to them now? But there was this feeling, and it was actually one of the most sobering things I did hear over the course of the book. There was a feeling amongst people um, on Neffet when they made their contribution before the announcement of the loosening of restrictions going into Christmas that they felt that because the government hadn't listened to them they, they felt that the failure was on them as public health experts that we that they hadn't convinced the government that it wasn't the government's failure for, um, for going a different path but it wasn't they clearly didn't convey the seriousness of the situation enough I think there's going to be a huge focus on that that whole interaction both in October and last Christmas when we do get around to an inquiry around how all this was handled but there is a feeling and there is a, a, a dwelling on that October row amongst people who are involved in the decision making and they're like, we really wish that that hadn't happened because it did sort of bring that Neffet versus government dynamic, that whole row, really to a whole new level. And things, you know, things have improved since Christmas in terms of how that's all handled. But those wounds haven't healed. The way that people in government and the Neffet talk about it, there clearly is an underlying tension still there. Yeah, and then to have, you know, Micheál Martin, among others, you know, saying after Christmas into January and February when it really all went pear-shaped and let's not, you know, lives were lost because of it, you know, if we knew then what we know now. Is there a huge sense of guilt on behalf of the government for the decisions they took leading into last Christmas? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know if guilt is the word. I do think there was an enormous weight of responsibility. And some, some ministers talk about this very openly. Like, for example, Pascal Donoghue, the finance minister, talks about how in early January, as we were sort of seeing, you know, our ICUs pushed to the brink of capacity and people dying in horrendous numbers, that he was sort of rooting through his desk, looking back through cabinet papers and briefs, you know, saying, how, how did we let this happen? What did we miss? What did we get wrong? But there are some, obviously, there's a huge amount of ministers to say, OK, our decision was a big mistake. 
uh, that we did c- can contribute to a situation where we did see, you know, Ireland's incidence rate of this become the worst in the world. That we did have, you know, over a thousand people, a thousand lives lost over the course of January, which is unthinkable really now, even at this point. I think that there's an enormous amount of reflection. Some ministers who I did speak to, and I was quite surprising to hear it, still feel that they had no role to play in it. There's one minister in particular I think of who said to me that would things have been better or worse if we followed the NEFID advice? And I think that that's something when you put that to other people in government as well as other people in NEFID, they're like, I can't believe that there are still people who think that way. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. that, that, that there is this view that were the public health experts completely wrong and we were just right and we actually picked the better of two options? And I when, don't think... Yeah, yeah and when, when the coalition was formed, Simon Harris, he wanted to stay on as health minister. Do you think he would have handled things differently to the way Stephen Donnelly has and is? It's an interesting question, and he did. He did. He very much did want to stay on in the Department of Health, and, and, and he did for many months after the decision to, to sort of switch health minister. He did sort of pine after his whole department. I think there's a view, and it's important, but I did think from a public interest point of view to sort of look at how the various ministers handle things and how they were received by the HSE and the Department of Health. There is a view among among some people senior uh, at a senior level in NEFED and the HSE uh, who are dissatisfied with how Stephen Donnelly handled things as the Minister for Health, and how he sort of responded to their advice, how he sort of dealt with you know, things as they as they cropped up. But there is actually an interesting point is that they felt that over time, the person responsible really for COVID sort of shifted away from being the Minister for Health to Micheál Martin. Like Micheál Martin took on this very hands-on role and so did his civil servants in the Department of the Taoiseach, people like Martin Fraser and um, uh, 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 Liz, um, sorry, I forgot his other name there. Canavan? Basically, yeah, Liz Canavan, of course, yes. But they, would, um, but they took on a very sort of hands-on role in how COVID was managed. So effectively, you'd have Tony Hood or Leo Varadkar or Michal Martin, sorry, would be on the phone regularly to um, Tony Houlihan and Paul Reid, just sort of getting, getting the direct line from them that he wanted to sort of have, that there would be nothing lost in the messaging, whether that's through the health minister or through any other prison, that he wants to know directly from his top advisors, from the top experts, what was happening. So that's an interesting change in the dynamic uh, that did happen as time moved on. Mm. And he's uh, Stephen, Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, he's not that happy with your book. Did I hear him say he hasn't bought it and, and he won't uh, uh, read it? Has that affected your relationship with him at press? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Conferences. Ah, no, I wouldn't no. say so. I mean, no, it's professional relationships as you would have with any other minister. I mean, it is interesting. Uh, obviously, I was quite surprised at the time when you do hear that, um, that sort of said about it. And I think it's important that people in political life as well as in the health service and I know a lot of them are reading it but I do think it is important that we sort of reflect on it because the book isn't just about politics and it's not just about Stephen Donnelly so I think there's important lessons for people within the Department of Health to take from this particularly the personal stories mm. people like Sheila Murphy in Clonakilty people like frontline workers in CUH people like uh, Karina Sadler uh, Mary Horgan who are working there and has extraordinarily huge roles in leadership and how we got through this. I think that their reflections on things should be listened to by people in politics because we don't know when the next pandemic is going to arise. We don't know when we're going to be in a situation like this again. Uh, these new pathogens and virus seem to arise that are more, you know, more regularly than they have done in the past. So I do think it's important that we do take the learnings from this. Yeah, and God knows, Richard, we're still not out of this one. And we can also finally lay, lay claim to part of this book being a Cork book because you wrote some of it in uh, West Cork. Because, of course, you've got a great West Cork collect- connection in that your partner is the wonderful Louise O'Neill. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, I mean, if you're the first person to read the book, uh, and I tell you, there's nothing more nerve-wracking than handing over a book when you've never written one before to somebody who knows a thing or two about writing them. So, like, Louise wouldn't ever sugarcoat it. Like, so I was like, this is you would be extraordinarily nervous when you're handing the thing over. But she was very, she was great for just being able to sort of say, would you explain what that is? You know, things like even like R numbers and contact tracing, all these complicated things that we've all sort of collectively taken on yeah. had to learn and understand. Things we'd never think that we'd ever have to learn, things about epidemiology in our normal lives. But um, she was great for sort of pointing out things that needed to be explained and stuff like that. But no, she was great support all the way through. But yeah, I'm like, I'm enormously proud of, uh, the West Cork connection. I'm, I'm in trying to kill you at the moment, actually. Brilliant. So, um, you're, you're, yeah. No, but no better, basically. And listen, going into the future, if you keep up the writing, which I feel sure you will after this incredible book, yourself and Louise in the future could become the Maeve Binchy and the Gordon Snell. They used to sit, <laughs> they used to sit together and write all the time and well, share each other's notes. Say, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? So that, that's what you could be into the future. Will there be a revised edition of this book next year or will there be a whole new one, do you think? I think it's, I've, I've, this is my contribution to, to this. There will be other journalists and other authors who will want to have their go at it. And I think that's important that we do that as well. There's a different perspective in it. Like I know that there is a, a, another book which is coming out early next year, which examines purely the political end of things. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do another version of this um, to, to sort of update the full story of it. Because I don't think the full story is ever going to be told. It's, only ever, it's sort of like a patchwork quilt where different accounts will sort of come together to do this. Um, so I think that, that, that this is my contribution to that, really. 
but again, yeah, the full story hasn't been told. Some of the full story will never be told. Yeah, I think. yeah, absolutely. Uh, but hopefully that we start to. We well, start to get a full picture of possible in the new year. It is an absolutely cracking uh, read and uh, to anyone who hasn't read it, I'd suggest go out and get it, A State of Emergency, the story of Ireland's COVID crisis and somebody's straight away said, I'm reading Richard's book at the moment. It is fantastic. It is. Listen, Richard, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. It's a privilege, Patricia. Thank you so Good much. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Richard Chambers, news correspondent with Virgin Media. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.